This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is the London FinTech Podcast, episode 244, brought to you in association with Smart and the enlistedboard.com. And after the mega big picture dive into creativity in the previous New Year special, I'm delighted once again to come down much nearer the practicalities of the rubber on the road within FinTech. Today, we are joined by Jerome Lelouel, who has a long and deep career in the world of banking credit, most recently as CRO at Funding Circle, you may have heard of them, comma, and now he is the founder of, quotes, instant SME lending startup, Triver, T-R-I-V-E-R. We will hear later about why, after getting on for two decades of lending in London, a super experienced chap like Jerome clearly feels there is white space on the map to advance into. The angles of increasing speed and automation within lending is quite a theme right now, and we have covered this quite recently in two episodes on the podcast. In LFP 240, Mortgage Decisions in Days or Even Hours, not Weeks with Stuart Cheatham, the CEO of Empowered Mortgages, and LFP 236, Making Loan Decisions in Minutes with Chirag Shah, CEO of Nucleus Commercial Finance. However, for this particular episode, the main topic will not be data, but will be the risk assessment aspect of rapid lending decisions. Where is the dividing line in 2024 between, shall we say, on the one hand, automated or purely computer-based algorithmic credit decisions, and that, on the other hand, which is better made or has to be made by human beings? Question mark. This is an age-old topic in the tech world, but with ChatGPT being just over a year old now, we've all been astonished by how, apparently, clever those algorithms on computers are actually getting, and leaping past dividing lines in the textual and graphic realms that even AI experts would not have believed possible two years ago. So, the question has to be asked, are we going to see analogous leaps in the banking credit world, perhaps by some GPT type thing or different type of technology, or is it going to be the continual evolution of people basically managing to get their computers to do ever more clever things? We shall find out what Jerome thinks. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good morning, Jerome. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Good morning. Thanks for inviting me. So I was doing the usual thing about trying to find something more interesting than, oh, sorry, not quite as interesting as fintech, but second only to fintech in terms of uh, interest. And after the better part of a decade, it gets ever harder to find a fresh topic. But I was very interested in something that you said you'd like to talk about and an alter ego of yourself, which is miles away from the tech world, perhaps 90 degrees away or 180 degrees away, the art world, where apparently you know a little bit. Yes, um, it's been always, uh, it's always been a, a passion for me. Um, I love art. I love the, uh, especially uh, uh, sculpture and, and paintings, photographs, visual arts, basically, because I, I, I'm always amazed by the infinite creativity that uh, can be displayed, even though so many, many paintings have been made <laughs> uh, over centuries you still get artists finding a new uh, a new point, a new way to do things, a, a refinement of the technique and, and still manage to create surprise and um, and this uh, feeling of discovery, which I always find uh, 
extremely exciting. So yeah, aside my my business life, I had the uh, had the, the chance to also uh, work part time as a as a as an art gallerist. Uh, my wife being the boss in that case, and me being the one carrying the paintings and providing some support, but uh, enjoying the company of uh, brilliant artists and uh, and meeting with uh, with art collectors all around the world. Um, he, he, he has a gallery in London, but we've traveled the world. We've been to art fairs in Miami, in, in Basel, and so on. And being part of this uh, special world uh, was, uh, has been really insightful for me and so different from my business life. That's interesting. I couldn't really have uh, organized this better if I'd tried, and I hadn't actually tried to line this one up. As, as I mentioned, the prior New Year special episode was on creativity. What is creativity? Where does it come from in, in a number of um, domains? And I hadn't mentioned art as such, but I had given some musical examples which I tripped across recently, one of which was a Taiwanese lady who plays classical Chinese instruments, but to heavy metal, the fusion, and has amazing costumes, and was the one I suggested was in the desert. And another was a band called Otoken, who are a Siberian kind of folk, rocky, poppy band from the smallest of the um, uh, Siberian tribes, which I have to say was the most original thing I have seen for decades. And I'm quite a critic of the, the music world, having been quite a fan back in the the 60s, uh, in the 70s, and that so much is, uh, is derivative. And both those examples and others were literally ones that if you left me on a desert island for 100 years and said, OK, Mike, your, your job for the next 100 years is to think up fresh ideas for music or fresh music videos, I would not have thought them up. So creativity is very fascinating. And I have to be slightly careful uh, in terms of what I say, for reasons that become apparent, in that uh, between Bridget and myself, we've got four kids, but two of whom are working in the art worlds. And... Uh, <laughs> Fortunately, they don't really listen to fintech podcasts, I hope. But in that particular case, without mentioning where, from one perspective, I mean, Sir Roger Scruton's Why Beauty Matters, which is on YouTube for people who haven't uh, checked, checked it out, is a really interesting one. It is possible to take the view that um, uh, the kind of beauty that one saw in art is, shall we say, less frequent. And I do want to get into a whole podcast on art, truth, beauty, etc., etc. But you say you've seen sort of interesting things. I mean, uh, we've got some, I've forgotten what they are, actually. We've got some works, incredibly small works, uh, upstairs by um, some, is it Uzbek artist? Um, and she trained in the USSR. So what happens in the USSR, old school system, is that you learn technique for ages and get incredibly bored doing that for 10, 20 years. And then they say, oh, do whatever you want. <laughs> Over here, they forget that, you know, that I'm, just, I'm, I'm slightly, slightly extremising it, but they forget the technique and you just think, I know, I saw a shark in half and you get someone to saw the shark in half for you. So, yes, I am putting it in my usual caricature spectrum terms, but uh, what's your perception, having been in the, the art world yourself, over matters like um, beauty and in, in inspiration? Is it just there or is it less frequent? I mean... Or is it just old hat? Is, have we all, all moved on from truth and beauty now in the, in the, in the modern world? For me, I mean, there are people have different uh, views on that, of course. For me, I, I'm interested in uh, artworks that uh, have a meaning. There, there is something special. There is a so what. It's not just nice to look at. There must be something intriguing. Uh, there must be something that triggers thoughts. But I also uh, enjoy when this, this art has some level of uh, aesthetics or, or technique or something that makes the object attractive. And when both exist together, I personally find it uh, very interesting. Some people really don't care about the second one. They're more interested in the idea. It's not me. I think I like to have uh, something that I can see and see again every day and and find pleasure in uh, looking at it, but but also getting intellectually stimulated about it. So I think that's my personality. 
Excellent. Well, obviously you use a, a wider portion of your mind than many folks in the, the tech world. Although now you're a founder, perhaps you'll get less time for carting um, uh, pictures around because uh, from what I've heard over the past decade or so, and also based on my experience, founding per se seems to take up a quite a lot of people's time. But before we get to founding, which we'll talk about at the end and what, uh, why you founded and Triver and, and these things, maybe you give the audience a little bit of a, an overview of your uh, deep background in uh, the lending world per se, in that lending money is not something you started to think about was a good idea last week. It was a little bit before that. So you've had plenty of time to consider lending per se. Yeah, so I've had a, a career in financial services in the UK, although I'm from France originally. I've been living in the UK since the late 90s. And I, I, I ended up in the lending world just completely by coincidence. I moved to the UK with my wife and uh, she was a student and I was looking for a job. And I ended up interviewing with a company that had just opened an office called Capital One. And they hired me into their Nissan team to launch their credit card business in the UK. And that's how I became an expert in credit cards, uh, having spent 12 years with this company launching then the, the business across around the world. And I got really intrigued and excited by the use of data analysis to understand people's behavior, which is very much what credit card analysis gives you because you see patterns of payments, you see what people do and so on, and how they how it, it varies by geography and by uh, social demographics. I, I found that really insightful, very interesting. And um, I got hooked into this analysis and the use of statistics to understand behaviors and, and, and understand the product economics. And beyond that, I decided to stay in this field I moved from uh, Capital One uh, to Barclays Bank. They hired me to bring the uh, expertise I, I, I built at Capital One into their credit card business, Barclay Card. I ended up managing the book of Barclay Card just at the time of the recession because I joined them in May 2008, which was an interesting uh, coincidence. How exciting and, uh, and uh, probably kept you busy a little bit. Yeah, so for a few years, I was uh, managing a, a portfolio of £40 billion pounds of assets around the UK, US, Africa and try to make the best of this uh, unprecedented event. And actually, this is where I learned that if you do things with rigor, with science, with, with, with calm, you can actually do really well in a recession. And, and the company I was working for at the time, and it actually ended up becoming very, very profitable and growing very fast by acquisition, by recruiting customers. When everybody had retrenched, we were confident enough with our controls to keep going. And uh, the business ended up doing extremely well and became the most profitable division of the bank, despite this recession. And that, that got me um, into a different uh, level of uh, thinking onto, into the strategy of a bank, a lender, and how the risk and the reward are connected together and how you can uh, generate growth with smart risk management. And I ended up uh, uh, being asked to manage all the risk analytics for the whole bank of Barclays. So I had a giga team of... Uh, thousand people, PhDs around the bank, doing all the maths for the investment bank, the commercial bank, everything. And I saw, I saw many asset classes. I saw the, uh, the smart use of analytics in some places, less developed in other places. Um, I tried to, to raise the bar. It was hard. And the piece that uh, got me really interested was uh, uh, small business finance, because it was one of the least developed division in that bank. And I tried to, to understand why, and I, I, I really got intrigued because I, I'm, I'm passionate with fixing problems and use the best possible tools to fix problems and make people's life better. And this one was really a hard nut to crack. And I, I, I ended up meeting some other folks in the market, some fintechs, one of them being Funding Circle. And they basically seduced me to leave my big job to become one of their partners 
and I ended up spending another seven years at Funding Circle, building the lending platform for Funding Circle and helping SMEs around the UK. And that was another adventure. We went through an IPO. We went through COVID, where we distributed uh, government-backed loans, helping SMEs to, to survive during difficult times. So my experience from the 2008 recession was very handy. Um, but it was a different kind of problem and uh, with different tools and different technology available. So I've enjoyed that very much. And after all these years doing different uh, consumer lending, business lending, banks, non-banks, um, I decided it was my t- the time for me to do it myself because I had enough experience, I think, to, to do something useful in spaces that are still uh, left uh, uh, underserved. And uh, that's why I've decided to create this new company called Triver a year and a half ago. And this time I'm focusing on helping SMEs with their short-term liquidity finance, the, the short-term funding gap they have over a couple of weeks due to their working capital uh, structure, because this is, a, I believe, a, a need that is not well served by banks or other fintechs at this stage. And my expertise is such that I think I can do something special there. I can, I can, I can offer a product that was not available until now. That's my new adventure. It's very exciting. Excellent. So, as you mentioned, I mean, Capital One is very seminal. Uh, JDev was on the show, uh, CEO of Zopa, a couple of years ago. We were discussing a 20-year arc of the whole peer-to-peer story with Zopa starting in 2004 or whatever, when he and I had first heard of fintech and, and all this kind of thing, through to now where Zopa uh, is a bank and doesn't, um, doesn't do peer-to-peer. And it's quite clear that a, a lot of the Capital One alumni went to become quite important figures within fintech, not least of which because Capital One, for the sake of a loose term, was quite quite scientific or data-driven or something like that, one of, one of the um, uh, earlier ones, uh, applying perhaps something that one might see of the mentality of hedge funds in the, the 1990s uh, that are actually sort of uh, uh, data-driven. So uh, we'll hear a little bit more about that uh, later and, and perhaps some of the business model challenges because, as you may have noticed, there was a, a firm that started a little while ago called Market Invoice or whatever it's called, called now. It keeps changing its mind and my memory gets ever, ever shorter. And one of the interesting things about the, the short period ones, um, uh, as you will have spotted, which is that you get generate lots of data. Uh, however, you have to keep doing lots of new deals. So <laughs> there's always a trade-off. If you do 100-year loans, you do a few of those. And, and it's like planting oak trees or something like that. You come back in 100 years and you know, you've got a certain number of trees. So you don't have to do much in the, in the meantime, really. Whereas uh, your salesman need to resell the loan every two weeks. But no doubt you've uh, thought of that um, angle. So just looking at this whole risk aspect, as I mentioned uh, more recently, we've looked at the business angles and the data angles and computer angles and all these kind of things uh, around doing things ever more quickly. But as you've got quite a deep background in the, the lending risk era, and as I've thought about risk for quite a while myself, including from a blank sheet of paper 30 uh, years ago when no one really thought about it at the aggregate level, we should start off with a little bit about defining what both of us mean by the word risk and a little bit about the philosophy. And you're, um, uh, you, as you say, are, are French, and French are very well known for uh, what uh, the French people call Cartesian logic, but which very often to the Anglo looks like not logic at all, but it may be Cartesian. <laughs> so no doubt we can have some uh, uh, different perspectives on this. And I always refer to a book I mentioned a number of times on the show, which is the one written by Lord King, Mervyn King, former governor of the Bank of England, and John Kay on risk versus uncertainty and the debate in the 1920s between basically Keynes and the statisticians, where uh, just uh, simplifying the whole book, uh, the statisticians said, hey, we've got a bunch of data, we, we can use this data to tell us something about the future, and we will call that risk. And there were, I don't think Keynes and the other lot on the other side going, well, okay, cool, why not 
But actually, there's this thing called uncertainty, and actually you never know, as, as, as all the listeners will have found in their lives, various things suddenly happen out of the blue, discontinuous, and all sorts of weird things happen. So that's how I see the spectrum, which is that there are one extreme. There are things which are uncertain, unpredictable, unknowable, the unknowable unknowables in a, in a, in a famous phrase. Not the other... There's something like credit card lending where, sure, we would have all agreed 10 years ago, 20 years ago, there's a ton of data. Yes, why not use it? And yes, it gives you some insight. So risk I see as the uncertainty of outcome. And then just going back to my prior incarnation, risk as the uncertainty of outcome applies to a business. So Triver, Funding Circle, Capital One have uncertainty of outcome. You know, we have these single point budget forecasts. Let's say Capital One these days is forecasting a billion dollars of profit. You know, what is it? A billion plus or minus a million? A billion plus or minus a hundred billion? A billion plus or minus half a billion. So risk can apply at the very, very aggregate levels as well as at the, the, the decisions. So how do you see this whole thing about what is risk and, and what is the philosophy of risk and what do you mean by it from your perspective? So obviously risk is a very broad topic because it depends on the context of uh, which risk we're talking about, right? We, in our life every day, take risks. You drive your car, you're taking a risk, right? You're, you choose a job, you're taking a risk. So, um, But in the context of, uh, of uh, lending, I think usually uh, we mean by risk the possibility that a customer who we have granted money to, we have lent money to, might not repay that sum of money and it becomes a loss to the lender. That's that's the credit risk uh, problem. And um, facing this problem, banks have to invent controls that will ensure that the, the, the most likely outcome is going to be within um, a level that is acceptable to them financially and basically within their risk appetite. So with this concept, of course, you have many ways to, to, to take care of that. But typically, um, a lender would uh, think about controlling who you would offer this lending to and who you would not try to be selective, not random, because some, lend, some borrowers are unlikely to pay you back. And that's something we should probably... Uh, leave aside and then there is a question around how much money you can give to people because this uh, opens up questions around affordability can people actually repay you even though they, they might want to they might not afford it so there is an old question of sustainability of the lending and then there are questions around over time how do you manage this exposure how do you increase the exposure do you reduce the exposure depending on how things evolve in terms of the customer in terms of the environment and finally uh, there is a question of if the customer runs into trouble, what are you going to do about it? To try to help them fixing their problem. So try to, to, to avoid the, the loss, the, the event of default. And then if they actually default because there is nothing you can do to stop that, um, how do you minimize the loss, the loss given default? How do you try to, comp- to reduce the net loss? So all these levers obviously uh, mean parameter setting. Uh, there are decisions to be made around how you're going to calibrate those things. And the question is then is, what tool are you going to use to make those decisions? No tool is going to be perfect because you're not going to remove the uncertainty, but some tools might be more uh, effective at uh, uh, avoiding the, the worst effect that, um, and, and controlling the likelihood of success. But there will always be a tail event where you might be off. And the question is, you know, what is the the odds you're happy to live with that tell you, yeah, maybe once in a while you're going to be off track, but quite rarely. It's like taking a plane, right? You know that some planes crash, but it's so unlikely that you're happy to take that risk. Um, And it's unlikely because planes have lots of controls. 
right? They're, they're very good maintenance and very good monitoring. That's why it's a it's viewed as a safe bet, even though it's not a zero risk bet because there is no zero risk bet. It doesn't exist. So the, the, the whole thing is to decide how you're going to frame that and then what tools you're going to put in place to make those decisions. They could be automated, they could be manual, they could be a combination. There is no perfect uh, solution. It's a, bal it's a balancing act. Okay, so I like your complementary perspective, which is less about the philosophical aspects. Maybe you've been out of France too long, because most French people love thinking about philosophy and discussing it ad nauseum. But you have actually been in the lending world and dealing with very large portfolios and, and therefore see it much more from the practical kind of Aristotelian perspective, which is, look, we are here now, we need to turn left or turn right, as opposed to the platonic, there is a chair of which this is, an, you know, or there's an ultimate piece of art or something. And on that, uh, it does produce many angles. I mean, you're, you're clearly improving your psi powers because I had uh, aeroplane dials in my mind because one of the uh, ideas I've always had, which isn't always done, is what I call dials on an aircraft. If you're flying an aircraft and you stare at one dial, you will crash the plane. <laughs> there are a number of dials showing you different informations and you have to scan them all. Now, this is particularly the case back in the day, I don't know how it is now, with value at risk which is that people used to have a VAR model and the Bank of England would approve their VAR model and that was the number. Okay, that was the number that came out from one model. But I always felt that there was value from, shall we say, having three models, A, B and C. Three dials of your portfolio. You know, you're running your big risk portfolio. Oh, computer model A, model B and model C says so-and-so. Oh, model C is going in the really red zone, the others aren't. Oh, why? So at least that gives you, especially on the, the larger your portfolio, it gives you an idea about there's something going on and we can we drill into it. So um, how have you seen the, the practical application, whether it's done or automatically these days or not done, of lending, management of lending portfolios being based on a number of models, not just this is, quotes, our credit model, capital O, capital C, capital M? Yeah, so, so um, I think in modern uh, lending companies, um, there is a, a list of models that are running and used continually and usually to answer different questions. So uh, very often um, the company looks at the, uh, at the lending uh, experience as a, as a customer lifecycle, right? You first start by trying to find the, the target audience, the people you want to attract to your product, say a loan, a credit card or whatever, a mortgage. So you would target a population. For that, you might use statistical models to target those who are likely to respond instead of burning marketing, but also those who are likely to be within your risk profile um, before they even show up, because there is no point bringing people at the door you're going to turn down. So there are models used to that, and they are continually recalibrated based on the environment, the competition, because things are moving all the time. And then people at the door, you need to decide which one you're going to say yes to, which one you're going to say no to. That's an application model. Um, and you might do it by segment, by product. So there are different uh, uh, models that might be built to answer different questions. Uh, you might uh, then have a pricing model. How you, what are you going to charge a customer for uh, their risk profile, but also their, for their propensity to walk away if you don't give them a good enough price? So they price elasticity models. And then depending on the product structure, you might have to reassess uh, the exposure you give them from the beginning to their lifetime. If it's a credit card, you might change the limit of the card over time. So you have models to decide which, which customer you should grant a bigger limit, a smaller limit, when should you do that, and so on, and, and so forth. And when you get to 
delinquency. You might have models in collections to decide which uh, case you're going to work hard on, which case you're going to be soft, which one you're going to push to a, a debt collector because it's pretty much a, a lost uh, situation, which ones you're going to spend the money on to do legal, uh, take legal actions. All these are driven by models. When I was at Barclay Card in the UK only, I think we had like 25 models just for credit cards um, because we were trying to answer different questions. But also sometimes, as you said, you could also have a a, a control model and a, and a challenger. And you try to compare if a new version might beat the existing one because of the time model decay, the environment changes and you need to be stay alert to that. So it's, it's, uh, it's usually a, a viewed as a toolbox and you need to make sure you have the right tools for the right work and never get complacent thinking you have a tool that is going to be good forever because the market is moving all the time. So you need to keep it fresh and, and, and tune your tools, your tooling, continually. Uh, so the concept of there is a black box and nobody knows what's going on, I think is quite wrong. Usually not, that's not the way uh, professional uh, lenders would operate. They stay very, very close to understanding their tools and, and surveying these tools and, and re uh, challenging them all the time because they're conscious that if one tool goes off, it can have severe impact on the company. Yes, I and mean, it's probably a little bit of a, a tangent, but the challenger approach is interesting because having mentioned ChatGP uh, in, the, in the introduction, about a year ago when I was looking at how people were practically finding new ways to use this tool that no one had ever used before and was a great leap forward from the prior versions. One of the aspects that seemed to work really well, for example, refining a plan or something, was to have two versions of ChatGPT, one of which comes up with the other idea and the other version of which criticises it. And that's probably got some sort of smart phrase attached to it now um, within, the, within the whole sort of uh, LLM world. Uh, and in, in parallel, going back to the fixed income days, uh, in terms of making decisions on investment, lending as a type of investment, it was always really useful to me when I was running the fixed income to have weekly policy meetings. Somebody said, no, no, the dollar's definitely going up because of this. And someone who said, oh, the dollar's definitely going down because of that. Then they all sit there and parrot to me. We all think it's going up or we all, we all think it's down. So I don't know how that can be used in, in the lending world in the model sense. But before we sort of go into any more refinements, we've used the word model quite a bit. And one of the things is that models work best when there's lots of data, when you've got big portfolios, because statistics does. You could say, for example, that I don't actually know what I'm having for lunch, for example. There's a probability I'll have chicken, there's a probability I'll have beef, there's a probability I'll have something else. But that's really meaningless, actually, because it, there isn't really a probability about this. <laughs> there's a plan for lunch, I just don't know what it is. So the small numbers is where sort of statistics aren't designed to work by definition, or I don't actually know what the definition of statistics is. Maybe you, you can enlighten me. Um, but in particular, I'm thinking about models and the challenges of models where you have continuous phenomena and discontinuous phenomena. Let's take an unfortunate one in the news at the moment, or Twitter at the moment, which is nuclear war. So <laughs> you have these great models and they work fine. Uh, let's say you have credit card payments, so you've got tons of data, so that doesn't come in. And your models work fine, and then, oops, there's a nuclear war. Then actually that's what one might call, a, apart from other things, a pity, but it's also a discontinuous phenomena where there's actually your historic data just chuck it away. Cause, you know, or an example closer to home in the financial services industry is the Icelandic crisis, Landsbanki and all that kind of lot, where you had one set of uh, data and then suddenly the banks go bust and then you've got a discontinuity. So uh, now obviously this is going to be something that's very relevant, more or less relevant to different domains. So if you're doing two-week loans 
well actually they, they, they roll over quite short. If you're doing a mortgage on a house or something and the, the house has just been hit by an atom bomb because somebody's got upset, understandably, with the UK and flattened London or something like that. So how do you see this whole thing generally with the continuous versus discontinuous phenomena that one is trying to model? Yeah, so I think in the world of lending, um, we're lucky enough that uh, things are, the, the, the characteristics that drive risk are more stable than in the world of uh, uh, trading equities, for instance, right? It's, it's, it's a more stable environment, um, but you still have discontinuities. What my, my experience uh, is that uh, models that are decently well designed uh, are in the risk world, they are there to rank order the risk of the population from the lowest risk person to the highest risk person. And those models typically keep performing even in very extreme scenarios, i.e. the ranking keeps making sense. The level is going to swing. So that's some things people sometimes um, um, don't see, is that there are two different things. A model can predict an average uh, default rate of 1%, and in a recession it becomes 3%. Ooh, the model is off. But within this 1%, they, you're talking about a population with a ranking from 01 to 10%. And that ranking might remain true. It's just that the level has gone up. It's like the tide. Um, so, for instance, in the 2008 recession, when I was at Barclay Card, the risk ranking was held, held very well, and we didn't have any problem. It's just that the, the, the riskier customers, instead of running at, I don't know, 15% loss rate, they were running at 25. But we were declining those guys anyway, because they were ranked in the population we didn't want to touch. We might have to tighten a bit the, uh, our, our decision point to our cutoff, because some marginal customers would enter the... The, the, the zone where they are outside of risk appetite. But the rest of the population was pretty much behaving as we were expecting with a slightly higher level overall, but not completely off. Similarly, COVID, which is a completely different kind of problem, it's an operation, operational risk problem. Despite that, when I was at Funding Circle, we didn't find that during COVID, the good guys became the bad guys and the bad guys became the good guys. That's not true. Um, now, of course, COVID was artificially massaged by the help of the government, which supported lots of businesses, thankfully. But... Uh, underneath, we didn't see the model going completely crazy, uh, even though it's, a, it's an event that could never be, have been planned in the um, test sample of the model. But because the underlying factors of are you a business with cash, are you a business that is growing, are you a business with solid assets and so on, remain valid. Of course, there was a penalization if you were a business that was shut down versus one that could keep going. But within, within those parameters, the model was still helpful. So we didn't end up taking uh, uh, really bad losses because of that. So I think I think it's uh, it's uh, it's true that there are things that the model is going to be blind to, and there is an element of judgment that needs to be taken to overlay and to define some multipliers, some some sometimes called post-model adjustment, um, or moving some some cutoff, some tightening, in order to navigate the environment. But that doesn't mean that the uh, the underlying um, um, tooling is completely useless. This might be more true in some trading algorithms where sometimes the, the world has changed to a point where the correlation break completely. And this has happened a few times. In the world of lending, it's more rare. Interesting. Now, we, were talking, we are talking about computer automation of lending and making rapid decisions and all that. I just want to touch on uh, briefly being sort of something of a skeptic that computers can do uh, everything in life. A topic you mentioned before, which is the management of a lending portfolio. Now, obviously, this varies enormously 
depending on the circumstances, but just going back to old-fashioned banking and five years, ten years loans at Plan Watts, we were the seventh largest bank in the, in the city back in the, uh, the old merchant banking days, including all the commercial banks. What would happen there is, for the sake of argument, that something that was a green light portfolio in, in a portfolio review goes, oh, uh, this one's amber. It's gone amber. There are some warning lights here. And then the bankers will get on a train or something, whatever, and go and have a meeting. And oh, and everyone will stroke their beards and what metaphorical beards. And nobody had beards off the top of my head. And or we need to do something and we need to tighten the security or we need to do this or we need to do that. Now, this management process of individual loans within a portfolio, I assume that's something which is depending upon the segment you're lending to. But let's just take, say, 10-year commercial loans to large organisations. I assume that's something that's pretty much resistant to computerization because the computers aren't quite yet clever enough to go along and, you know, read a 50-page legal agreement. Maybe they can read the 50-page legal agreement these days. But is there much automation of the, the management of individual loan items within an overall portfolio possible? So at the end of the day, we're talking about pattern recognition, Right. Whether it's a human brain or a machine doing it, it's the same thing. Right. People want to find clues that there is something that correlates to a potential problem and know that early on to predict a potential problem and do something about it. For the model to be helpful, the model needs access to digitized information that is uh, that can be uh, processed automatically, um, mathematically processed and a sample, uh, a large enough sample with historical performance. In the absence of these two things, a model cannot operate. So the example you're giving, which is you're trying to manage the book of large corporates and the the new information, the pattern sits in documents that are not digitized, um, then yes, it's going to be hard for a model to do anything because the information has not been made available for the model to to train and to predict anything. But then if you do, um, let's say, a portfolio of small businesses where we have a continuous access to their bank data through open banking uh, with an history, uh, then the model is absolutely fine to, to tell you whether there is a, a blip, there is something going on, and send you alerts uh, to identify the businesses that are likely to, 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 to go bad and do, uh, so that people can do something about it. So I think it all depends on the, the, the data source and, uh, and the history that was made available. It has nothing to do with whether it's a human being or a machine. It's whether the information could be consumed by a machine to start with or not. So most often the, today, human beings are not leveraged to, for their brain. They're leveraged for their ability to, for their eyes and their ability to see things and collect and put the data together. But um, the day a machine can do that, then we don't need the underwriter, really, because the underwriter doesn't add anything. His, his ability to do pattern recognition is weaker than the model. Um, but I've tested that many times in my career. I've horse raced a team of manual writer against a machine. The machine always win. Uh, there is no question about that. Because human beings cannot understand interactions between variables. It's very hard. Um, yeah. We do a binary uh, view, good, bad. But we're very bad with nuances. And um, these are things that human beings struggle with. Uh, what you can do is to you can have a, uh, a population that is scored by a model that has been properly trained. And then on top... The human being can add another layer of thinking because there might be uh, data uh, that the model was not is not aware of that the human being might know. If you read something in the news, oh, the model doesn't know about it, but I know this is bad. I'm going to override the model for this good reason. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. And going back to the art point and, and creativity, and I'm thinking about much larger end. I know, let's say you do a, a, a loan to a, a country 
then it's the creativity. It's the, you know, you go over there, it's a bloody mess. What can we do? It's the brainstorming. Yes. I'm just trying to find a little bit of the world that, that we need human beings for rather than computers. But uh, we shall see. Anyway, uh, moving on back to the more computery end of things. How do you see the, the future of this automation? Um, and one thing we haven't touched on, Jerome, which is, 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 is a bit impossible because it does vary by, uh, very much by uh, segment. Where do you think, going back to the introduction, the dividing line is? And let's start with these sort of short-term uh, loans you're talking about. Where is the dividing line these days of automatable and superiorly automatable, i.e. it's better than having a human being, versus still needs a human being? Let's just start with your sector and maybe you can you know, just pick up one or two others out, out of interest. Can, for example, short-term invoices to certain sizes of company, I mean, if you do a short-term loan to me, there's no data or bugger all data or just one little sort of blips of numbers. You can't interpret much from that, either as a human being or as a, a computer. What percentage, shall we say, of short-term facilities in the UK to SMEs are computerizable today? And where do you think that's going? So I think today, uh, if you look at the SME population, um, the piece that is hard to, uh, to do uh, statistically is when companies are very young, because you don't have much history, and when companies are very big, because you're lacking sample size. So these are the two extremes where it's harder. Everything in the middle, I think, could be automated. So I'm saying any company with, uh, that is at least a year and a half, two years old, and with a turnover below, I would say, 20 million pounds, could be fully automated. This probably makes, in terms of number of companies, I would say around 70% of the market, maybe. Uh, the, the big chunk that is left out is the young companies. They're quite big. It's quite a big number. The, the, the big companies are very small in units. They're big in pounds, but they're small in units. So the, 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 major, the vast majority of the market can be automated. Now, if you look at what is today automated by the banks, I would say it's less than 5%. Oh, wow. Okay. So there's an order of magnitude. And this leads quite nicely into talking about your company, which we shall now move on to. But before I wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all the listeners out there and my brand partners for the podcast. Smart is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. The leading edge retirement tech platform propelled them to success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. Thenlistedboard.com, your guide to entrepreneurial governance and how you can start making your board an engine of growth today. So thank you very much, Jérôme. You've given us a useful tour d'horizon of automation and risk in the lending world. So you clearly have got a large number of rational faculties, but... Not 100%, I suspect, because you did a crazy thing. <laughs> I know it's crazy because I've spoken to hundreds of founders now, which is set up your own business. And, you know, it's very much the sort of top gear. How hard can it be? Well, hopefully not too hard, but it might be a little bit challenging on the odd day. So as well as uh, having the odd day where you're not completely rational, but you're driven by passion and, and other things like that, which aren't computerizable yet. Anyway, what was it that uh, led you to form Triver? and in particular in the area you're in. What are your plans, where you're going, and what do you need even more of tomorrow to make you better than you are today? Yeah, two things. I think there was a, there was a personal thing, which is uh, I like uh, the thrill of creating something from scratch and be innovative and gather a team and have lived the adventure. I think that's, that's, that's what drives me. I was part of uh, companies where I, I did set up products, teams, so I enjoyed that a lot. And I thought this time I can do it myself. Um, so that was this adventure. But the other thing is, um, I'm passionate about uh, making the society better and using my skills to, to have an impact. Um, and in my field, as you understand, it's about these automated decisions and science and so on. And I'm thinking there are gaps in the market uh, I could help fixing. 
Uh, and the one I really care about these days is help, uh, helping small businesses because the small businesses are the fabric of the economy and the society. If small businesses don't go well, unemployment goes up, people are unhappy, the economy is not running well, it's really bad. So in my small, uh, uh, from my small vantage point, if I can do something about it, I would feel very good. When I retire, I think I would have done my duty and that's, that's, that's part of the motivation as well. So I've, I've set up this company. I'm focusing on a segment which I think is, uh, is not well served by existing lenders, which is the short-term cash flow finance for small businesses in the UK. When a small business has fluctuation of cash flow, which they always have, today the, the only solution they have really is a bank overdraft, which is not easy to get and it's usually insufficient, or invoice financing, which is extremely old-fashioned and very manual. It takes four weeks to open a, a, a factoring facility with a bank. And that doesn't work for most SMEs. And then the other products like loans and so on are not really suitable for a, a need of a few weeks. It's more for years. So there is this gap where there is no good solution. And, um, and there is a reason for that. It's because banks don't see much profitability there because they're quite manual and because the cost per transaction is too high. So it doesn't make money. They're not really bothering. Well, with my expertise, I can automate that stuff. I can leverage algorithmic uh, analysis. I'm leveraging open banking data, which is a, a gift. It's, it's amazing. With that, we can run amazing uh, risk algorithm and suppress most of the manual intervention that would normally happen. And that means we can deliver to SMEs access to a, a facility, which is like a line of, line of credit, in a few clicks, in minutes. And then they can draw money to their bank account by advancing invoices, client invoices, in two and a half minutes, straight to the bank account, 24-7. This level of service does not exist anywhere in the world. It's the first time our invoice finance is being fully automated and simplified. And I think I can take that to the market and open a new solution for SMEs to manage their cash flow and, and have a, a stronger business. Excellent. And just from a business model perspective, what is your approach to um, sourcing deals? As I say, if you're doing a, a loans for two weeks and you have to do 26 for a year, if I do a loan for one year, I just have to sell it once. Quote, quote, sell it. Uh, what, what's your channel to, to market yeah. on that? So, of course, you're right. It's, uh, it's, it, would be, it would take ages to, to recruit the, the thousands of SMEs who could benefit. So I, I've built a, a tech platform that can be consumed through APIs, which means uh, the solution can be embedded with partners. So I'm inviting partners to, to team up with us to offer this very slick financing solution to their SME customers. So I can bring this lending brick into their broader tech uh, platform and become a button and say the partner is a bank or the partner is a, an accounting software, a procurement software. They interact daily with SMEs who trust them, but they might not be offering this lending facility as of yet because it's very complicated. I can bring that to the equation, take care of all the complexity, all the decisions, all the credit risk, all the management, and then uh, share some value uh, commissioned with my partner and help uh, them being more successful with their customers. So that's very much the idea is to be an embedded finance solution to provide invoice finance at the point of need through existing partners who are already trusted by those SMEs. Yes, I don't want to get you too enthusiastic, but uh, having started with ChatGPT, they seem to have made quite a nice business out of being an, uh, an API because plenty of other people go, oh, that's a really nice API. We can use it to do. And then you're leveraging other people's creativity and other people's networks and other people's. And, you know, they literally have spent the last year, apart from an interesting fiasco over the board fallout uh, at the end of last year, but they spent, apart from that, they spent the last year going, Wow, that's cool. We hadn't thought of, thought, of, thought of that one. And so I hope that's a useful example, even if you don't quite get to be the chat GPT of the, the short-term lending, for you guys, which is that if you do something well enough, 
then actually going back to creativity and art, as we were talking about in the, in the first place, and actually needing human beings, other human beings end up doing something with your API that you say, gosh, I hadn't thought of that. So thank you for that, Jerome. I wish you and Triver every success in the future. And thank you very much on behalf of the listeners for giving this tour d'horizon of automated lending. And certainly you seem to be setting a new high watermark about the rapidity of making these decisions. So every success in the future to you and your company. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you're in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience and contacts in the worlds of both traditional FS and fintech or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas via clarity.fm slash mikeballiman. We could sit in a vendor all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride Watch the fire light dance with me, watch the fire light dance.